לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה 102.3 מלשים, קיץ באוויר. Another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamit in Highland Park, New Jersey, at the Highland Park Conservative Government Congregation on Shemit. Joining me, as always, my good friends, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Solomon Checker Day School, Long Island, and Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky on Shechesed, New York City. It's great to see you. We have a great Parsha, an amazing Parsha. This week, let's get right into it by Yah Ekev Kishmu. The Parsha is called Ekev because of its second world word. Uh, could you please uh, offer a translation for the first verse? Jeremy Kamanovsky. How about, um, as a result of you keeping, obeying these rules and these statutes and keeping the faithfully covenant uh, and, and guarding all of the uh, steadfast love and oath that God made with your ancestors, and because... Uh, you have been, Akev is, as a result, it's literally like as you walk in the path of the ankle. The ankle is the Akev. And as a result, God will shower you with love thanks to your faithfulness and your uh, and your um, uh, commitment. It will be reciprocity. The religion of the Bible is a religion of Brit, covenant. You make promises, God makes promises, they match together. It's, you know, a reason why things can be difficult, um, a theology of that, that is, you know, centered around reward and punishment can be a hard thing in any generation, but certainly those of us who knew people who were in the concentration camps for crying out loud, um, the theology of Sharva Onesh, reward and punishment, can be can be a hard swallow, but it is very central, especially to the book of Devarim. Loyalty is met with loyalty. Disloyalty is met with disloyalty. I think that's a, it's a great way to sum it up. And of course, there, there's, a, there's the original loyalty here. And, and that's already uh, invoked in the first verse. The covenant and the love, uh, the bond that God made with your, with your fathers, with your fathers. It's like, so, I know your father. Go ahead, so what do you make of that pairing of breed and chesed? So one way to understand is that a breed is conditional. You have to follow the, the stipulations and the chesed is unconditional. But is that how you're reading it here? I think that's a great way to, to connect it, that this is a, a word pair, breed ve chesed, and it's like chesed ve emet. It, it basically says something is hard and fast and something is also, um, you know, loving. It's, it's, there's, there's a, a, the, the obligations of law and the obligations of love, possibly. I, I would say that there's a, um, you know, a kind of, um, first of all, overarching uh, throughout the Bible, there is, there is the idea that the divine chesed is unconditional. Um, you know, this time of year, we may get to it today from this parasha, the seven haftarot between Tisha B'Av and Rosh Hashanah, all coming from the latter part of the book of Isaiah, 
the overarching theme of those things are, I was really, really mad at you for a short while, but ultimately my chesed, chesed David hanemanim, my, ultimately my kindness towards the house of David is inexhaustible. Um, by the way, as one small thing for fun, um, in, in one of these haftarot, it says, uh, uh, you know, th- that mountains may move and shake, and yet my love is unshakable. Uh, by the way, George Gershwin died in the high summer, and his brother Ira Gershwin, I have this like guess and image that Ira Gershwin was in Shul saying Kaddish for his brother when that haftarot came up, and he gave us Gibraltar may crumble, the mountains may tumble, they're only made of clay, but our love is here to stay. Um, so it, it is endless and overwhelming and unconditional love. And yet, we know throughout the Bible, there are statements like, you know, the land vomited out the people before you because they were wicked. And if you were wicked, you will get the same treatment. And so it's unconditional, but the theory of this kind of religiosity needs at least a little bit of conditionality that it is responsive to your behavior. Indeed. All right, let's move on to the, to the next uh, a verse in the next uh, paragraph, uh, which has to do with how you are to behave when you come into the land, which is another theme that um, this uh, book deals with, Devarim. Devarim is very concerned about what is going to happen in the land. And of course, later on in the Parsha, we have some really important verses on the land itself, but uh, you're to uh, obliterate their idols, burn them up. Do not even covet desire the, the gold and the, the silver and the gold that's on the idols. So it's one thing to, you know, destroy your idols. It's, you, you can't benefit from this. Uh, could you offer some reflection on this? Is, is idolatry that much of a taboo that you can't even partake? Or what do you think the Torah is trying to say here, Jeremy? What do you? I've been talking a lot. Barry, you want to go? Go ahead, go ahead. So I think that idolatry is the great taboo in the Bible. I think there's no question about that. I think the question for us in 2021, 5781, is what does idolatry mean today? Is yeah. there that kind of concept? But here in the verse that you, you quoted, Elliot, there is this idea that once something comes within the purview of idolatry, it's trafe, or in the biblical language, it's an abomination and cannot be used for anything else. And I think, you know, part of the tension here, I think we've discussed this over the course of time, is that when the Israelites come into the land, they're not going to come into a land that is empty of people. This is not yet the promised land, which is given to the people without a land because it's a land without a people. In the Bible, the land always has people in it. In real life too, by the way. (laughs) Oh, I didn't, oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that the, the problem is that when you look around, you move into the land as the Bible describes our ancestors doing, they look around And I think the reality is, without the propaganda, that there are a lot of successful people there. And because they're successful, there's always a temptation to do what they do. And they worship differently. They have a different religious structure. They derive meaning in different ways. And their whole way of living can become very attractive. Especially, The land land is productive because of that. I mean, in, in the ancient world, of course, 
you know, the productivity of a land and, and the, the fecundity of people and uh, the, the ability of animals to reproduce, all of that is not uh, a, a result of, of human uh, labor. It's, also, it's a result of divine blessing. And of course, uh, in antiquity, pagan peoples uh, equated their productivity with, with the beneficence of the God. Of course, that's the, the biblical idea is that there's one God that gives us that uh, blessing, which is part of the earlier passage. But, but you mentioned something that, that you know, it ties into now the, the rest of the, you know, one of the iconic verses of this Parsha, which uh, I suppose is emblazoned on lots of different uh, Sukkot and lots of decorations. And we have, it, it's depicted artistically in a lot of places. God is bringing you to a good land. Eretz Nachalemayim, a land of brooks, ayanot utomot, a land of fountains and streams, yotzim babikao vahar, that, that emerge from the mountains and the valleys. Eretz chita usora, a land of wheat and barley, the gefen uteina verimon, the vine, the figs, and the pomegranates. It's Eretz zechemen udvash a land of olive oil and honey, and that's probably date honey. You're not going to have suffer by eating bread. You won't, have, you won't lack for anything there. So we have this beautiful, rather poetic depiction of the land and its products. And, and what, what you said, Barry, just before made me think of the fact that, you know, what we are referring to here is the productivity of the land, and we're not referring at all to the historical link to the land. We're not, it's not say, this verse doesn't say it's a land where Abraham and Isaac were, Abraham and Jacob, Isaac and Jacob were. It's a land where this happened. It's a land where this story took place. It's a land, you know, where all the formation, I mean, maybe that's understood, but here it's like tachlis. It's a land that's going to produce all of these different categories of, of, of products. Here. Right. But what's missing here in part is that the water, which is going to nourish the land, ultimately is going to come from the sky. Yeah. It's not like Egypt, where the water that nourishes the land is a river that I think was understood to be eternal. In Eretz Yisrael, the rain is seasonal. It's imprecise. It doesn't always come when you want it. And as we'll see later in the Parsha, it's going to be predicated on the way that we behave, that the rain will only come if we do the right thing and will not come if we do the wrong thing. And one last point here is that the question that the geography and topography of the land of Israel always raises for me is that if you're a farmer and you plant and your crops don't come the way they're supposed to, who is at fault? Is Are you a bad farmer or is it bad weather or is it some kind of combination? Well, Here, I, I, yeah, go on. I would say it's someone who's just started a little herb garden outside my my, my kitchen. Uh, I can tell you that you, you got to be very careful with herbs. You got you to gotta know when to water. I mean, yes, it's, of course, the combination. But Jeremy, you wanted to jump in there. I, yeah, I was, I was going to say the, the verse that Barry referred to about the, the, this land is not like the land of Egypt, where it goes, this is chapter 11, verse 10. Look how it's Mitzrayim he. Okay, this is not like Egypt. 
Asher Yitzatem Misham, which you left, Asher Tizrak et Zaracha, Behishkita Beraglecha Kegan Hayarak. You will, you can water Egypt Beraglecha like a vegetable garden. Now, does that mean that Egypt, because of the incredibly reliable and gigantic, I'm sure it was the biggest river, uh, they had, of course, hadn't seen the Amazon yet, so it was the biggest river in the known world. Um, does that mean that it was super duper easy to get a little water from the Nile to your vegetable garden? Or does it mean that it took intense labor Barag lecha means you had to carry by yourself the water, whereas Eretz Yisrael is going to be watered from heaven. Um, that sort of makes sense in context, except in in reality, I don't think from the ancient world, you know, we know that in Eretz Yisrael also, you had to have irrigation. You had to have aqueducts. You had to have, uh, um, you know, methods of storing water and hauling water. It's not like in reality that that farmers in Eretz Yisrael just waited for God to pour the water on them. They actually also did all that stuff. So it's not clear to me exactly how the partnership, I mean, everything we know is, is for all the reasons that you guys just said, uh, being a successful producer of food is a combination of divine raw material and human skill and ingenuity and labor. So both of those things are necessarily true, which is why back to the things, the, the verse that you said about the, um, the goodness of the land concludes with that most important verse yes, of, of you should when you have when you have this feeling of satisfaction the spiritual challenge is to not say as it is elsewhere in the parasha damn i'm good it's thanks to my own power that i did this all myself you didn't do it all yourself. You're part of a divine human partnership. And the spirituality means that you have to be grateful uh, for your own accomplishments and for the gifts. Let me come here. We Go ahead. question on last week. When we talked about Meach B'chalko, you should be happy with your portion. So one way to read the words, is that they are actually in the command, understood to be in the command form. You will eat and you'll be satisfied with what you have and you'll praise God for it, which is not the way that we normally read it, that you're going to eat and be satisfied, meaning there's going to be a lot of food to eat. Well, some years there's not going to be so much food, but in any case, you still have to praise God for what you have. So I think, I think a strategy, permit me to be a little textual here, is that a strategy for reading uh, the Torah in general, these parshiot in specific, is to notice where the word pairs are are you know, coming. And we, we had one already, Brit Bechesed, and we have Ushmartem Vasitem. Vachalte Vesavate is, in fact, a word pair and occurs in the second paragraph of the Shmab. You will eat and you will be satisfied. This is the only place where that third verb, Uveirachta, occurs. And so, and, and uh, when the, the Torah is cantillated, it's Vachalte Vesavata, comma, or at the Etnachta, and you shall bless. We often think, you know, eat, uh, be satisfied, and bless, but it's eat and be satisfied, and then bless, meaning that the blessing refers to both the eating and both the being satisfied. It, it relates to uh, word one and word two of the word pair and, and, and serves as a modifier for both, and, and therefore you 
you know, the, the, the necessity of blessing, I think, becomes that much uh, more involved. I mean, we have entire tractate, you know, chapter of a tractate, probably, of uh, brachot dealing with this, you know, and, and the notion that what constitutes satiation, what constitutes, you know, consumption. Jeremy, you were not- The way you said that, it made me think that you have these things in the Bible, and the Greek term for this is hendiades, like two words that mean one, like yes. raining cats and dogs. It doesn't mean it's raining cats and it's raining dogs. It means it's raining cats and dogs. And I, I'm wondering if if Achilaus Svia is like that. You know, you will eat and be satisfied is, is one thing. And then that's the that's the bracha. Indeed. Okay. So let's go on. Let's let's uh let's talk about th- that that the possibility of uh, and we, we touched on it a little bit. That's the verse, verse 14, chapter 8. You're gonna you're gonna make all these things. And and the tendency then is I remember Rabbi Simon Grimgalavashalam used to talk about this verse all the time. You know, you're gonna forget God. Then you have to remember uh, it's my my strength and my might that is asaliyat azed that has given me all of this. You have to remember God. What is it about religion you have to be, in general? Go ahead. That you, makes you have to be like this. This to me is an interesting major question about religion. Like on the one hand, you have to feel some sense of vulnerability to be a spiritual person you have to have some sense of feeling your own smallness before the divine grandeur. And, you know, you feel your own like need for divine support. And if you don't feel that, if you're just too strong and too mighty, um, then you will get haughty and you won't have the proper relationship to um, the, the overarching metaphysical spiritual reality of, of the cosmos. On the other hand, I also think this, that this is a religion that wants human beings to feel powerful and f- to feel um, capable and, and does not want to say, you know, you human beings are just sheep and God does everything. And, and, you know, you're just like, you should take vows of poverty or something like that. No, we should actually be successful. We should be good farmers. We should be good business people. We should be good scholars. We are intellectually adequate to understand the Torah. We are morally adequate to live in a, in a good way. Um, you know, we, we favor we favor abundance rather than, than poverty. So it's really going to have to be a very finely tuned balance of feeling vulnerable enough to love God, but feeling powerful enough that you're not like a, you know, a hunk of mud. Well, the, the Torah does dignify the individual by giving the individual that, that sense of power, that sense of capability. Barry, I know you want to kind of weigh in and say, so my late teacher, Rabbi Byron Sherwin, used to emphasize the polarity in religious thought. That God, for example, is Avinu and Malkinu. He's our father, our parent, and our, our sovereign. And it seems to me, Jeremy, that what you were suggesting was another, another polarity between the vulnerable and the powerful. And it is really, as you said, so key to the religious life because what we're looking for is a balance. We're never going to quite get to where we're going. And periodically, we have to take stock of where we are, the so-called way station on the journey. But we shouldn't think that we've ever arrived and we have everything that we need because we have to get up 
in the morning and and confront the the new day. And that tension, I think, is very much a part of the Torah reading this week, because on one hand, the Israelites are going to be successful. And on the other hand, they're cautioned that their success may very well lead them to abandon God. And you always have to be aware of that tension and take steps to ameliorate it. All right. I want to go to chapter 10. Moses is recounting the the story of, of how he broke the tablets. He, he, he smashed them. And of course, you know, we remember back in, in Exodus, uh, in Parshat Yitro, when Moses, re, or... Kitisa. Uh, uh, Kitisa, I'm sorry, where Moses uh, smashes the tablets. But but here, I, I want you to reflect on this. And, and we, obviously, we can't go into, into detail in the whole text here. Uh, and, and what, you know, that immediately brings to mind in terms of both rabbinic teaching and also uh, what's, it, what's he trying to say here? What, what, what is going on here emotionally or, or uh, just in terms of recounting the story? And maybe you can cite uh, that uh, very, very lovely Midrash. Uh, uh, Jeremy, want to take this? Wait, why don't, why don't you? Uh, so, so, so the, the a, idea, the question is up there. The, the, the idea is that Moses said, You take two stones and, and, and come to me, come up to the mountain and make yourself a, an ark, make yourself a box. And I will write on the, the, the tablets the things that you uh, uh, were on the first tablets. In other words, there's a second shot here. The, the ten precepts that are part of the covenant were, were smashed, and Moses is given the opportunity here to reconstitute that covenant in a new uh, set of tablets. And I keep thinking, you know, the tablets are probably not like much, much larger than floor tiles, because otherwise... They would have been so heavy, wouldn't be able to carry them. Although, of course, you know, it's a miracle. But then uh, the, the rabbis teach us that Moses puts these tablets in the ark together with the broken tablets. What does that signify to you? It's amazing. First of all, it's uh, when, the, when the rabbis in the, in the Talmud and Baba Batra use that midrash, they, they cite it, they associate it with... Um, reading with modern eyes uh, a person with Alzheimer's disease or, or um, dementia, people who have forgotten, they say this is a sage who forgets their learning. Um, sages who forget their learning are like the, the, the whole tablets and the broken tablets together in the Aron. And, and I think we, any of us who've experienced dementia, people get it, right? Like sure. the, the fullness of that person and the broken fragments of that person inhabiting a single body. Um, and, and I think that this is like just a very, very vivid um, picture of what it is to to live in the world. You've had some great successes in your life. You've had some abysmal failures in your life. And if any of us were judged on the worst thing we ever did, we were hopeless, just completely hopeless. But our lives, in fact, are a, are a box that holds us at our fullest, our best, the greatest possibility, symbolized by the tablets that God gave us for, for directing a sacred life and all the crap we broke, all the failings that were so outrageous that we had to smash them into a million pieces. And the, the, the just image of that being true about each individual life and even true about being a society or a culture, like, you know, 
I think that any one of us knows that we as Am Yisrael have had, here we are speaking the week after, uh, or, or, you know, week and, week and a bit after Tisha B'Av, we've had destroyed temples and we've had rebuilt temples and we've had destroyed temples again. And we've had holocausts and expulsions and, and some of those, and we've had Sinat Chinam and we've had Ahavat Chinam. We've had pointless hatred and, and free-flowing love. So it's just really... So in a sense, you're saying we, we, we do carry the, the residues, the shards, the shattering, the fragments of, of, of previous aspects of our lives that were whole, they become shattered. And they, they, we carry them around in the ark. They don't leave us. They're, they're always with us. Uh, whether that is you know, the shattering of uh, institutions, uh, the shattering of the people, the shattering of relationships, the shattering of of uh, a mind, right? I, I, Jeremy, it's such a vivid image. Of course, uh, you know, and, and many of us uh, indeed have lived, you know, with loved ones who have, who have had dementia. And it's exactly, it's exactly like that image. You know, you get a, a, a half a sentence here, another sentence here, a word here, a word there. It's all scrambled. It's all scrambled. It's like taking a mirror and smattering on the floor. And, and then you see one piece, one piece, one piece. And, and you're, you know, that's, that's the, the shattered tablets, Barry. So what I'm reminded of is that the, the shattered tablets, that's our past, and we cannot outrun it. We have to take it with us because, in a sense, even though Yom Kippur is coming up and we have this idea that we're going to start over, we never start completely over. And, you know, you mentioned people with Alzheimer's or dementia, their tragedy is that they've been denied their past. That's what makes it so painful for those who interact with them is that they have no past. Yeah. And there's nothing more profoundly sad than to not have a past. It doesn't matter always whether it's good or bad. It's where we've been. And our journey is defined as much by where we have been as where we are going. And if we can't take what, where we've been with us, we're not fully human. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting that you said that because I think the, um, in my experience of being with demented people, there's, there's just a variety of shapes that it takes. Sometimes people are denied a past and they really know, but we can also think about people sometimes who are denied a present. They, they can, uh, like people say in an offhanded way, I remember what happened in 1957, but I can't remember what I had for breakfast, right? Like uh, that people form no new memories. And I'm thinking of somebody um, dear, dear to us all, uh, Rabbi Morty Leifman, who uh, worked at the seminary for many years and was a member of my shul. And I remember, uh, shout out to his, to his kids, Ari and Mayer and uh, Johnny and Judy. Um, very, he really had very significant cognitive decline. I remember sitting with him in the course of 15 minutes, telling me the exact same story multiple times over and over again from his past, but his present, he, he had lost the present and the combination of what we need is, um, is to, to be a whole person is a past and a present. He was such a, person <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> we loved him we loved him such he was so animated uh okay uh tell me give me your best vort on eretz asher adonai elohecha doresh ota tamid doresh ota tamid a land that god doresh ota 
seeks Doresh, interpret Doresh. Oh, wow, that's so hard. It's so rich because it could be anything. It could be seeks. It could be... Um, Keeps accountable it could, of... It could be demands of. Demands. Like, because the, the Torah in, in this parasha says, at one point, you know, we were talking about the, the reward and punishment, Sachar Onesh theory. The one point the Torah says, listen, by the way, I'm bringing you this land not because you're so good, but because the people who live there now are so bad. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and maybe, I mean, like, okay, in reality, a monotheist has to believe that there is no place where God lives. God lives everywhere. God exists. The world is, you know, God is the place of the world. The world is not God's place, uh, as the Midrash says. But wouldn't it be something if, if, if in our religious sensibility we have a sense that, that the divine demands something of a holy land? And, you know, it's one of the reasons why, as, as we think about Medinat Yisrael and the Jewish society in the land of Israel, uh, I'm, I'm, I, like, I never want those answers. to. I never want, when people talk about political conflicts and human rights issues, I, and people say, well, what about Syria? I like, never want, why, why would I care about Syria? Why do I want to say that we're better than Syria? That's not a very high standard, right? I want to, I want to say this is Eretz, that, that, that God is, is, is Doresh, demands of it. Maybe, maybe, maybe that'll work for us. I don't know. Okay, we have the second paragraph of the Shema in this Parsha. The, par- the paragraph that begins, And this paragraph has a lot of similarity to the first paragraph, but there are some, some unique differences, including the idea of reward and punishment, which we, we talked about at the beginning, um, and also a, a reiteration of the uh, commandment to teach, uh, but also... Um, Mezuzot, which is part of the first paragraph. Then the last, can we kind of meditate out loud on the last uh, couple of lines? Laman yabu yamechem yamevanechem. So that your days be many and that of your children. That God has, again, promised to your fathers, to give to you al uh, what does that mean? As long as there is a heaven over earth. So the second paragraph of the Shema is to take us from this place of family to maybe eternity. I don't know. Give me your... Give me your Reflections. When you say this paragraph, what do you think of Barry Chester? Eternity is a long view. Um, I don't know that we're quite vouchsafed one. But I think that when we think of reward and punishment, we think of the present. I do something good, I should be rewarded. I do something bad, I should be punished. What Fahayam Shemoa is trying to emphasize is that reward and punishment is not just about the present, it's about the future. Something may work for us, but it won't necessarily work for our children, and we have to be concerned about this. You know, in Reconstructionist circle, this paragraph was taken out of the Shema. I think Rabbi Mordechai Kaplan said something to the effect that God is not a weatherman. This was before Bob Dylan, of course. But... (laughs) 
you know, now that almost every day in the newspaper we read about climate change and the negative effects that human behavior have had on the environment, this has become a very powerful passage because what we do, we may not bring the rain, but surely what we do does affect the environment. And we have to be concerned, not that we have air conditioning today, but that we, our children and grandchildren and on into the distant future can live on a habitable earth because we took care of it. And this is about us taking care of our home, not just our physical home, but our earthly home as well. Love it. That, that was really great because I was going to say something much less, much less practical and more kind of abstract about it's like, I don't, Okay, personally, I do. Uh, I am drawn to the idea of, of you know, post mortem, you know, hisharut hanefesh, that the individual soul endures in some other plane. I, I do like that. It works as part of my religion, but I understand the way it's kind of hard to explain that in, in contemporary scientific terms. So I was going to go with something like um, the point is that our children will continue in this religious or spiritual relationship, like this is an ongoing cyclical people, an eternal people, that is that the the eternal dimension is not about this one person as an individual, and it's not even about my own children or grandchildren, but the endurance of Am Yisrael, uh, you know, in that way. But I very much appreciate the way you turned it from a from a sort of poetic thing into a uh, like very, very practical. There, there is Sahar Ba'onesh, not because of the divine weatherman, but because of just consequence. The way we live has consequences. Okay, we can't, we can't end this without two sentences, just two sentences from Naftarah. We were negligent last week. We, not did, we didn't do anything from Shabbat Nachamu, 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 Ami, comfort. The, the Haftarah starts with these stirring words, Vatomer Tzion, Azavani Adonai. Science says the Lord has forsaken me. And then Isaiah in this, oh, the the Hatishkach Isha Ula Rachem Men Bitna. Can a woman forget her baby or disown the child of her womb? Gamela Tishkachna Vanochi Lo Eshkachech. Though she might forget, I could never forget you. This whole notion of uh, the sense of abandonment divine abandonment. And what Isaiah is saying here is that it's, I think it's the ultimate comfort. I, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to abandon you. Um, I think that that, uh, you know, from there it flows the, the, the entire sense of, of comfort. But any, any reflections on the, the, uh, the, this, this portion in one of the main ways, you know, we talk about idolatry, we talk about idolatry and the seductions of the of the visuals and stuff before earlier in the conversation, but one of the main ways that the Bible talks about idolatry is, is again, disloyalty and the, the metaphor of marital infidelity. So Hosea, very heavy, um, Israel is portrayed as the unfaithful spouse who, who just like wants to know the, the, the shinier and, and, you know, like more attractive idol, to, and then there'll be a new one tomorrow. And and God does something in Hosea, which the human beings are commanded in the Torah not to do, which is not is not to remarry the, the unfaithful spouse. Uh, once there's been a divorce, there can be a reconciliation, but not if there was a, an, a, a, an intermediate relationship. 
And this Haftarah says, Eza Sefer Kritzuti Imchem, where's your mother's divorce document? Right. Um, you think this is over. It's not over. You, th- you think I've given up on you and sent you away and I'm not going to take you back. Never. This, there is, this, is the, this is the non-divorce arrangement. We're still together. A powerful, powerful set of metaphors and images for, for this relationship. And of course, it, it makes all the comfort feel real because it, it addresses the real human beings, the real human needs there. So any, any last words, Barry, there on that? No, what strikes me is that the Parsha has the metaphor of God as the father. Just as the father disciplines the son, so will God discipline B'nai Yisrael. And here Isaiah uses the metaphor of God as the mother, that God will comfort us the way a mother comforts a child. And it leads us back, I think, to the, the first story of creation in chapter one, where God created human beings as male and female. And it's a reminder that we need to be creative in the metaphors that we use for God because they need to transcend our state on earth, not just limited in some way. And here, because we have both the male and the female, the father and the mother, it opens up a lot of possibilities for us to think about as we move towards the high holy days. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, with that, we have to conclude. Our time is up. We want to end by saying Shabbat Shalom to our good friends at Machane Ramah in the Berkshires. We miss you. We love you. We, we think about you all the time. We wish we were there. We hope you're having a great summer. We're going to say Shabbat Shalom to all of our wonderful viewers and listeners. We thank you for spending time with us, learning Torah with us. And we're going to see you again on another edition of Parsha Talk. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.